Right. So we're talking about this whole idea of sacred space. And I believe that as a church community, God wants us to have a shaping influence in the life of our city. The only way that's going to be accomplished, though, in the years ahead is if we grow in our influence. But I think to grow in our influence, we also need to go deeper. Deeper in our understanding of the profoundness of who God is and his son Jesus and his spirit and what role that plays in a person's life or could play. So I really resonate with these words of Richard Foster, who is a follower of Jesus and he writes a lot about spiritual formation coming to know God more. He says these insightful words. Our world is hungry for genuinely changed people. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep, deep, deep people. So over the next seven weeks, so six weeks ago now, we're talking about sacred space. Why? Because we live, firstly, in a flat world. Spoke about this last week. The idea that technology has taken us to such a place now that the scientific processes have explained all the unexplanatory things. And if they haven't, they will one day because all we are is material beings. There is nothing more to us than just molecular structures and interactions and synapses. We are just another species of, a species of animals that have evolved and that is all. We live, if you like, in a disenchanted, as the philosopher Charles Taylor says, a disenchanted flat world. Well, in that world, it's terribly difficult to talk about sacred space. The second reality is that we live in a world that embraces progress as though we are always heading onward and upward. I think that's happened with our technology is there's so many advances now that we just think even if the stock market shudders, it'll correct itself because we haven't lived through some of the adversity of our former generations. And so we just have this narrative in our head that says, you know what? Our world is flat. All we have is here and now. And secondly, we are always moving forward because the human endeavor and the aspiration of the human sort of passions will lead us forward and onward and upward. The only problem is, is when you look around at our world, you realize how much, if you like, trouble there is. Because human beings, if we've learned anything from that first narratives of Genesis, love to determine good and evil for themselves. And when they are given the choice, they usually do it really, really badly. And so, over the next seven weeks, I want to talk about cultivating sacred space. Because I don't believe that's the end story. See, the story of the Bible, the story of Jesus is this, is that there is a God and he is alive and you are more than molecules. And no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or has been done to you, there is a God who loves you and wants to restore you and rescue you and have you flourish, not only for eternity with him, but to experience his life and his presence in your life right now so that you will flourish. Life is to be found, I believe, in Jesus. 
But we have two competing narratives in our world. The overwhelming one is that we live in a flat world filled with progress. And this is all there is. But it's a contested space because the Jesus answer into that is that, no, no, there's another story and it's real and it's alive and it's taking residence and root in people's lives and it is available to you right now. So over the next course of this series, the seven weeks, I'm going to invite you to ask yourself a question. Which story am I living by? And which is not only the more plausible story, But which is the story that provides most flourishing and insight to hope and human existence? What is the more human story to embody? And I believe it's Jesus. So over the next coming weeks, that's what we want to explore. And in particular today, I want to talk about this topic. When God draws near. You see, when God draws near to a person's life, things change. Things happen. When God's draw near, when he draws near to someone, there's a reaction. It's either to push him away or to welcome him. What I want to talk about specifically about God today is his utter uniqueness, his otherness, or a phrase you might have heard before, his holiness. And when I talk about this theme this morning, I feel like a little boy who's standing in front of a great tsunami and I have nothing to help me because such is the powerful narratives in our culture right now. It's almost nigh impossible to talk about sacredness and specialness because we have eroded those spaces in just one generation. If you don't believe me, I think there's two things that have happened in our culture to why this is such a difficult topic for us to talk about or connect to. The first one is that we live, if you like, not only in a flat world, one characterized by progress, but there's this other sense in our culture in which we have removed all distinctions and boundaries to everything. Let's take the working week. There used to be a time, believe it or not, in generations past, when you would work five days of the week, And then you would have something called a weekend. It called it a weekend because you had a day at the beginning of the week and you had a day at the end of the week. It bookended your week. And it was a special place. There was a time not too long ago, once upon a time in a far, far away land, (laughs) when, when you finished on a Friday and clocked out, the shops closed except for the milk bars. And if you hadn't acquired all the necessary things for the weekend, you had to wait. Has anyone ever bumped into those circumstances? And how annoying it is? The shops are closed. Why? Because we believe in a culture that wants to make everything accessible instantaneously. And if that is inhibited in any way, we get upset. You see, what we've done is we've eroded the barriers of a weekend and made every day more so the same. They're all the same. Once upon a time, there was a thing called corresponding by letter. What you would do is you'd get something called a pen. And you'd take a piece of paper that's a bit beyond parchment, it's actually paper, and you would sit down and take time to write a letter to someone. I remember doing this when I was first dating Bron years ago. So 100 years ago when we were doing this, 
we would write letters to each other. That's how we first got to know each other. I would write a letter and I would fold it up and I would place it in something called an envelope. And an envelope actually just holds a piece of paper that you send. Then I would lick it, stick it, and then get something called a stamp. And I would put it on and that would mean I've paid for it. And then I would put it into this magical red box. And when you put it in the magical red box, it just disappeared for maybe two, three weeks until something turned up in your letterbox at home called a letter that was actually written by, believe it or not, the person I'd written to in the first place. And it was called, this thing we call is called correspondence. And so we would get to know each other this way. Well, now we live in a world where if we can't communicate to each other instantaneously, do we get upset? Because we believe that, if you like, we need to have access to all of those things right now. We've removed all borders, if you like, in our world. There's another transition that's happened, and this is not a bad one. I'm just saying it's happened. Our workforce has radically changed. There used to be a delineation in our culture about what were home duties and what were work duties. It's not as though... One was not working and one was. They were just separate spaces. Now, that's radically changed. And so our entire culture, if you like, has been turned and flipped and changed. Some for the better, some for the worse. So it's hard to talk about a sense of sacred space when all of our barriers and boundaries have been removed. The other thing that's happened, and I've alluded to, if every day is the same, if every correspondence is the same if we believe in access to things instantaneously we have lost the ability to wait you ever sat beside your microwave yeah 60 seconds man do i have to wait so long or you're trying to get some some download speed right you're you're in a new place and you go on you go into mcdonald's there you pick up their wi-fi and it's like oh man you get frustrated don't you Why? Because our culture demands access to every single bit of data instantaneously. The only sin in our culture right now is if you exclude. That has profound ramifications on all of our thinking when it comes to the idea of God's sacredness. And so there used to be a time in which we would wait for a car. You'd save up for it. And then when you got that car, because it takes you so long to save up for and so long to actually engage with, you valued it, right? You washed that thing. Now we live in a disposable culture where you can actually have something. It actually can be replaced very readily. And because you haven't had to wait for it, you don't value it as much. So in our culture right now, we've got all these things working, if you like, against us. There was a time in which we actually had to wait for the television. Now, do you know what the average size TV screen is? It's, it's actually gone threefold since the 90s. Now, the average size that we're heading into is either 50-inch screens or 65-inch screens. Some of you here will remember a time when you had one television. It was a black and white, and it was tiny. And you saved up all your money, and you might have been one of the first people in your street to actually have one, so people would come and watch this marvel that you had, Right? And you valued that thing and it was so important and special. Thank you. I'm getting some nods here. There are some people who remember these things and it's not that long ago. But now the size of the screens are getting bigger. And we used to save up for it or put it on something called lay-by. Lay-by worked like this. You couldn't have it straight away. 
but you really wanted it. So it encouraged you to save. The store kept it, but they set it aside for you. So you would save up money and you'd go and make little deposits. This is true. This has actually happened. This is before credit came in. And so you'd actually pay that off until one day there was the last sum total. You walked into the store going, wow. And you would walk in and pay that money and you would take your 65-inch flat screen home. That's how it worked. But we live in a culture today that doesn't wait for anything. And because we don't wait for anything, we don't value much. Everything's become the same and everything is ordinary. How can I talk about an utterly different God in a culture that cannot wait? We don't wait for anything. We don't wait whose beds we share, even though for many years Jesus followers have said we believe some things are sacred and special. To be characterized and welcomed into this thing called marriage, we don't wait because it's just fun. It's just the same and we're just material beings, aren't we? We don't wait for the correspondence that might come next week because we have to have answers now and we fill our heads with so much data that we don't have a space to actually think and breathe so that's why I feel like a little boy that's standing in front of a tsunami wanting to tell you about something that's other that you and I cannot get But there's a hunger and a yearning inside that has not been flattened in our ordinary. That's why I loved watching that little clip of the moon. We don't pause and even look up. And did you notice their reaction straight away? Wow. And I loved it how they equated the wow factor with God. (laughs) It just came out. Wow. God, God, wow. There's a hunger and a yearning inside of every single human being, I believe, and you have it as well, that even though we inhabit a flat world filled with progress that seems very ordinary, you know deep down you have been made for more. You look for the wow, you hunger for the wow, and that can be found in God. So I want to tell you a story in our time remaining here. If you have a Bible with you, grab Exodus, 20, uh, Exodus chapter 3, flip with me there. I want to tell you a story about this man, Moses, when the wow of God drew near. And it's more than wow, but we're about to encounter it now. You see, the story of Moses goes something like this. Moses was a young Hebrew boy that was brought up in Egypt And centuries ago, before you and I can imagine and before TV was even invented, believe it or not, there was this man by the name of Moses and he was brought up in a hostile environment to his people. And as he was being brought up and grown, the Egyptian hierarchy determined that the Hebrew or the Israelite people were a threat to them. Because they had been multiplying and increasing in number, they thought, if another power invades us and they side with the others, we're in trouble. 
So they put them to work as their tasks, if, if you like, their slaves, their servants, to work for them. But that didn't stop, that didn't slow down their multiplication. And so what happened was, in a decisive time, in that, that particular era, the powers to be and Pharaoh decided that what we must do to slow down the growth of this population is that every male boy who has been born should be thrown into the Nile River. Devastating. Moses was one of those babies. His mother so heartbroken, she put him in a little ark of her own. She pushed it out onto the Nile. And the princess, the daughter of Pharaoh, finds this little baby, takes him in, and Moses is raised, if you like, as a prince of Egypt. Well, it gets older, and, and he sees, as Moses is growing, the oppression of his people, the ones he identifies with. And one day he decides to act in his own way. He reaches out, and he decides good and evil for himself, and he kills an Egyptian man. And they discover this, and so he flees. He flees into the wilderness where he he meets a man by the name of Jethro who becomes his father-in-law. He marries one of his daughters. And so here we have Moses, and he's tending the flocks of sheep. He's a shepherd now. He's not a prince. He's a shepherd, and he's working for his father-in-law, Jethro. And the story goes like this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This mountain of God we're going to discover in the next few weeks is the place where God revealed himself in a powerful way. But it's interesting, in a lot of the versions, they don't have it, but it just says the far side. In the Hebrew, it's the west side. And as we've been talking about this Genesis account where God threw, if you like, Adam and Eve out of the garden to the east, now there's this sense in which he's moving back to the west, closer to where God dwells, closer to his presence. There's this sort of inkling that we're having another Eden experience here. And so as he's out there tending his flocks, this is what happens. Moses saw that there was a bush and it caught his attention. And the bush seemed to be alight and in flames, but it wasn't burning up. That's funny. There's another tree, but it's a bush. It feels like we're back, but there's something different. In Eden, we're in the wilderness. So it says, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And then it goes on. It says, When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush and said this, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Now, this is a pretty freaky experience. I imagine if you're out in the wilderness or out the bush of Australia and you see a a bush on fire, you think, This is a bushfire. But the tree's not burning up. This is weird. And as he walks over, like you and I would, because we're interested, all of a sudden we find that this bush speaks. (laughs) So now we should be a little bit disturbed. This is beyond the metaphysics that we understand right now. Something is happening. And then this is what goes on after that. God says, do not come any closer. In fact, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. This is the first time this is actually mentioned in the entire Hebrew Bible, this idea of sacred space, holy ground. It's not holy ground because there's something special about the dirt, although I think the dirt's still special too. But it's because when God's presence dwells near or in proximity to human physical places, it becomes, if you like, enchanted. It becomes sacred. It becomes holy. It becomes different from what it was. And so if you like, as he draws closer, God says, 
I want you to stay where you are. I'm not sure what this take off your sandals means, but there's something that's changed. No longer can humans just dwell with God like they did in the garden when everything was sort of in proximal distance. Now there's something distinctive and separate. There's something that needs to be changed about us so that we can stay close to that God. And he says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham. Remember, I made a promise to Abraham that through him, this world would be restored and redeemed. It would be transformed and changed. And I'm continuing with that theme now. I want to continue with my promise. The God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. There's something truthful about when God draws near to us. Our natural inclination like those first two in the garden, is to cover up. Because when God draws near, there's something about his otherness and our ordinariness that just seems to contrast and that he's different. He's unique. See, there's a great image, this idea of fire. Because at this point, this whole word becomes very abstract, this word holy. It doesn't just mean morally perfect or good like we sort of think, but actually has got to do with more with utterly unique. The source of life. It's powerful from the core, but yet it is good. That's what this whole idea of God's nature and that's why they, many people in the Hebrew Bible, they liken it to things like a fire. Because there's something good about fire, and yet we also know there's something dangerous about fire as well. And if you like, these two things combine to give us imagery about what God is like. He's utterly unique. He's a source of life. He's powerful. And he is good. That's why I love the imagery of the sun and the moon. The moon's, what, 350,000 kilometers away from us? I measured that this week. I had a long extension ruler. But the sun is like 150 million kilometers away. If you turn your direction to the sun and just one hundredth of a fraction closer, just a fraction closer if our earth was, we would fry. A fraction of a distance away from that and we would freeze. If I asked you the question, is the sun good? You would say, of course the sun is good because it gives me light. It shines on me, makes things grow, brings them life. It's good. And I said, can the sun, if I said to you, can the sun do dangerous things? You'd say, of course it could. If you get too close to it, it will burn you and fry you. And I say, why is that? And you would say, because it's dangerous as well. And that's what God is like. He is good. And he is powerful. But he is not to be messed with. He is most decidedly dangerous. That's why when Moses comes close, it's not for God's sake. It's for his sake. You are a mortal, Moses, and I am immortal. If you come any closer, oh. You look at the moon and you might say, wow. You look at the sun and you should say, whoa. If you look at the sun for five seconds, cause some discomfort to your eyes. Look at it for 20 seconds without turning your head away. It can do some damage that will repair itself. If you look at it for five minutes, 
then it'll do some damage that might become permanent. If you look at the sun for one hour without taking your eyes away, you will be blind for the rest of your life. Is the sun good? Of course it is. It helps me to see. But if you stare at that sun and you treat it un, sort of in a way that's kind of familiar, it could also permanently impair your sight for the rest of your life. Is the sun good? Of course it's good. Is it dangerous? Oh, of course it is. That's why it's called the sun. Holiness. Otherness. There was a time in North India some years ago, and we went to a zoo. And because we were the white people there, they said, what we'd like you to do is come out the back. We want to show you the tiger. So we'd love to see the tiger. So we walked out the back and they said, well, we've had to separate the tiger from the two females, the tigresses, because he ate one of them last week. We went, ooh, okay. But we'd like to show you the tiger. I went, okay. I said, how? All right, where is the tiger? They took us right around the back and there in this almost like this building with this like three bricks deep and with these iron bars, they said, we want you to peek through the little window here. I said, okay. And I peeked through the window. I can't see no tiger. I can't see no... Oh, there's a tiger. Oh, the tiger has seen me. The tiger pats through those two rooms and lets out the most spine-tingling roar that made me jump and run away even though I knew it couldn't get through that wall. Why? Because I have never come across any frightening sound terrifying to your core than the growl of a tiger. Is the tiger good? Actually, most decidedly not. (laughs) Is he powerful? Absolutely, yes. Do I pat him like a tame house animal and pet? Oh, no. Because that's not what a tiger is. Beautiful conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and the Pevensey children. You may have heard it. They're sitting around the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's table and Edmund says, Aslan? Who's Aslan? Who's Aslan, says Mr. Beaver? Who's Aslan? Well, he's the king of the whole shebang. He's the king and the boss of the whole thing. Who's Aslan? Susan pipes in and says, but, but is he safe? Is he safe? He's a lion for goodness sake. Is he safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. But he's good. But he's good. Band's going to come in a moment. In fact, come on up now. And I wonder here this morning, if it's so hard for us to talk about sacred space, it's because we've become so accustomed to the narrative of an ordinary world that's filled with progress that's flat, that when I talk about conceivable ideas about who God is and his nature, it just seems inconceivable. And the reason why it might be hard for you to pray or to create sacred space in your own life is because God has become a domesticated animal in your house that you can say, sit, go over there, Here's some food for you. 
come and sit on my lap and make me feel good. God's not like that. That's why it says in Deuteronomy 4, God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. He is hungry for relationship to you, but he does not need you to exist. But he longs for you. The all-consuming, utterly unique, powerful God that has generated all of this universe reaches out to human beings like us wants to warm and transform our hearts not because he's a domesticated animal oh no he's a tiger but this one is good utterly to his core so there's Peter we're jumping forward and he has an encounter just like Moses in Luke 5 He's, he's, he's in a boat and they've stopped fishing. They've caught nothing. And Jesus comes and hops in one of their boats and he does his talk on the water. And at the end of his talk, he turns to Peter and says, can we go fishing in your boat? And Simon says, Simon Peter, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Okay, Jesus, because you say so, I'll let down the nets. You could just feel it, can't you? So he does. And and he says, throw out the nets here. And he does. And they get so much fish that their boats start to sink. They call in the other boat. They fill it up with fish. It starts to sink. And at the end of this incredible power encounter with Jesus, the first response Peter has is just like Moses. He hides himself and he says, get away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. Jesus responds with his most welcoming, penetrating words. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I want you to fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore and left everything and followed him. Because he was the power and the source of life and they saw it in him. And so they gave all. When we get close to God... We sense our otherness. But he will forgive you. He will wash you of dirt. And he will welcome you home. And he will fill you up in his life. With his life that will reach into eternity. But don't, don't you ever mess with him. He is not a domesticated cat. He is a wild, untamed tiger. He's powerfully So let me ask you, is your God too small? Because if your God is small, you'll treat him like a butler. He'll be your best boyfriend. And it'll be hard for you to honor him. Because you've made him so small and ordinary. So familiar. I can do whatever I want. He just forgives and forgives and forgives. He has to because he can't live without me. kid ourselves he's the God of the universe and he is good sacred space this week I've gone way too long I know is he calling you aside he'll give you a burning bush this week maybe not the bush 
but he'll whisper to you, come aside with me. Come aside with me. Come aside with me. Go close. Don't come too close. But draw on his power. Why not? Is your God too small? Why wouldn't I? Because he is life as you hear this song now it's a song about coming back to the Father and if you're here this morning and you're far away from God don't even know if Jesus is who he says he is then I would invite you to do something dangerous close your eyes open up your hands open up your heart and say God if you're real show me but if you pray that and he answers you in a way don't just turn away open up your heart worship him Maybe you're here and you come dry. You need a big God. Ask Him, God, make yourself bigger in my mind. Yeah? Maybe you just want to sing the words of this song to yourself because you're coming back to Him. You've never left Him.